You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome to another episode of Body IO FM with your host, Kiefer, and co host, Rocky. Hey, Kiefer, how's it going? <laughs> Good. Um, as always, uh, you know, this show is pretty much self-sponsored by all the products carried by body IO, uh, that's carb backloading, carb night, transforming recipes, uh, pattern of health and, um, the supplements, carb shock and T3 fuel. So if a lot of people have asked to support the show and that's the best way to do it, uh, spread the word and get the information out there and we will keep doing what we do. Oh, and highly athletic wear. Almost forgot them. I think I might have on the last show or two. So today, uh, we've got, uh, this This should be a great show. A couple of years ago, I had watched the movie um, Supersize Me, and I wasn't overly impressed by it. I thought it was a bit of a polemic, um, but it was entertaining nonetheless. And I was talking about it, and somebody said, you need to watch this movie, Fathead. And I had never heard of it. And so, you know, I hunted it down and watched it. And it was the great, it, it was a great uh, contraposition to Supersize Me. And actually it was fabulous. And it resonated far more highly with what I had discovered in the history of things, as well as the research of how the body works. And of course, uh, the creator of the movie did not at the end say, oh, I went back to a vegan diet and that fixed everything and that's what everybody should do, uh, which was pretty much, I think, Wayne Spurlock's final closing moments. So today, luckily, we have the creator of Fathead on the show, Tom Naughton. Thank you for, for being on the show today. I appreciate you having me on. And just so everybody knows, your background is as a comedian. Is that correct? I have a strange and varied background, but okay. yes, I spent most of my 30s as a, uh, as a road animal, um, a touring stand-up comedian. And how, so, okay, so maybe we should go a little more into your background to see how you made the transition from comedian to, you know, actually I felt like the movie was almost um, a diet slash nutrition slash health advocacy uh, done in a very entertaining fashion. Well, that's, that's what it turned into. Um, uh, well, first I'll, I'll tell you how I ended up making Fathead. Um, I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And like a lot of comedians, actors, entertainers, whatever, you, you get to a point where instead of waiting for the magic audition to come along, you think maybe I should just create something. Maybe I should just write my own show, whatever. And then, you know, I know it's right for me. My show idea was going to be called In Defense of Common Sense, which was going to be a common sense guy who happens to be funny, me, looking at issues of the day. One of the first issues I was going to look at, and I was going to shoot this as a sample episode, was how we treat fat people in American society. Fat people are one of the few groups left where you can basically be a total bigot toward them and get away with it. You can insult them. You can say everything's their fault and, you know, you get away with it because most people think, yeah, they're fat because they just eat too much. 
So as part of my research for that, I watched Supersize Me, which I had never seen before. And I was kind of like you. Morgan Spurlock, by the way, is a good entertainer. Uh, he knows how to do amusing movies. He knows how to do amusing television. So I give him kudos for that. But the basic message of Supersize Me really kind of made me angry. Excuse me. <clears throat> So by the time I was done watching it, instead of doing this pilot episode, I decided I, I really wanted to do my own kind of documentary response. And I had eaten fast food before and, and lost weight. I knew that was possible. But since I was going to be doing an entire fast food diet, I started looking into nutrition research because I wanted to be able to talk intelligently in Fathead about, you know, what is this doing to my body? And when I dug into the research, that's when it really hit me just how much of what we have been told about health and nutrition is flat out wrong. So I ended up really changing the direction of Fathead as I went. Uh, still dealt a lot with what's wrong with supersize me. That's basically the first half of Fathead. Mm -hmm. And then the second half kind of transitioned into, and now here's what's wrong with what you've been told about healthy eating. That's basically how it ended up. Yeah, and you you did a phenomenal job in the movie. For anybody who hasn't seen it, you you really need to see it. It's a great exploration, and um, you have some fun animations of Gary Tobbs as a cartoon character flying flying around. I can't remember who else is in that scene, but oh yeah, it was <laughs> it Gary is. Tobbs, Malcolm Kendrick, Ufi Robinskov. It's That's it's funny. It I actually originally asked Gary about appearing in the film on mm -hmm. camera, you know, like Mike Eats did and some other people, uh, he was going to do it. And his publisher said, no, um, really? his publisher at the time. Well, you know, when he hmm. passed on his publisher's explanation, I actually kind of agreed with it because at that time, Gary's mission was to go out and convince the doctors and the researchers that they've got it wrong. Mm. So, you know, he's, he's dealing at that level, the doctor level, the researcher level. And his publisher said, I don't want you appearing in a comedy. It's, it's going to harm your credibility. And you know, I thought about it and I said, yeah, that's an actual risk. I, I could see where that would be a problem. But he, he still was a huge help in the film because I was trying to take what he explained in Good Calories, Bad Calories and explain it in a fun, amusing way. And I kept sending him pieces of the script and say, if I, if I say it this way, is that incorrect? I need to keep this as simple as possible without going so simple that it's wrong. So he kind of ended up serving as a, as a technical advisor for that section of the film. Oh, that's great. It's been a couple oh. of years since I've actually seen it as well. And, you know, I think one of the most amusing parts of the, of the, of the, of the documentary was uh, your interactions with your physician. So, you know, I had to talk, I talked to other doctors all the time. And so that's always kind of the amazement or the blank stare or the, you know, shaking head type of, moments that I come across all the time. So I was, I found that part most highly entertaining actually. <laughs> I, I, when I was looking at footage that, you know, those, when you're doing a lot of shooting, sometimes you forget what you have. And when I was looking at those, as I was piecing it together, I was thinking, oh my God, this guy's great. And he wasn't trying to be funny. It's just the shock when he looked at my numbers after 30 days of a high fat diet, you could just see it in his face. Not at all what he expected. And the line people seem to remember three, four years after seeing it was when he looked at it, looked at me and said, I don't like what you're proving here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's funny. A lot of these 
stories and these large projects and these uh, independent movements, I guess you can call them, that keep coming out. Uh, you know, now there's Nina Teicholtz has her book out, um, The Big Fat Surprise, and Gary's second book, Why We Get Fat, your movie, Fathead. Um, all of my stuff started the same way, and that was just really starting to dig into the research that we had, quote-unquote, and the history of where these recommendations came from. And then, you know, if you go far enough back, the history of the recommendations before that and how opposite they were when the government was interested in trying to make people healthy and, you know, how askew that became to what was known, you know, 100 years ago for health and then what happened 50, 60 years ago in the drive for health and then the results of that today. And when you look back through everything – you know, that's what's amazes me. If you just if you're willing to just go back and look at it, it would be very difficult not to be convinced that everything we've been taught is incorrect, that is wrong. And the the interesting thing is when people do go back and look at that and then create a mouthpiece for the public to see that, it's met with so much resistance, almost like that just can't be the fact of the matter. And it doesn't matter how in-depth the story is. It doesn't matter the angle of the story. I liked Nina's book because she really focused on the human stories in the development of all this. And, you know, it just doesn't matter the angle you go at. Everybody's like, no, 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 that can't be right. That just can't be right. It, it, and like you said, it's, everybody just is fat because they eat too much. And Yeah, I, oh. I, I really loved uh, Nina's book because, you know, at first I thought, well, it's going to be like reading good calories, bad calories again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it really wasn't because they told some of the same backstory, but then Gary, of course, moved heavy duty into the science, so heavy right. duty into the science that a lot of people found it intimidating and didn't, you know, didn't want to read it. Uh, her story, like you said, it was really the human story. It was the detective story. It's here's how this bad advice became the standard advice. And I learned, I, I thought I knew the backstory. And when I read her book, I realized there was way more to it than, than I'd previously known. Yeah, and and there was still more, you know. um, I think a lot of people don't even know the history of why we have the calorie or why it was used. And um, for for me, it's it's coined to this new term that uh, I I think upsets some people. But I now call all vegetables. It doesn't really matter, you know, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, with things that I I even enjoy eating, or salads. I call them poor people food. Uh, because, you know, that's that's the whole reason we have the calorie is, you know, the turn from the 19th century to the 20th century uh, when Atwater was looking at malnutrition, he saw that people who ate heavily based animal product diets, so a lot of meat, a lot of beef tallow, uh, a lot of pork lard, uh, you know, bacon, dairy products, all these things, when he, when he looked at those people and they were healthy um, and they had, you know, no problems – uh, in their life, no malnutrition, things like that. And then he started looking at the lower socioeconomic groups that did have malnutrition, and he was looking at the basis of their diet, and it was very heavily plant-based. Uh, whether it was starches or vegetation, uh, they really got very few animal products. So, you know, his whole mission was to create some sort of equivalence between this high animal product diet and a vegetable diet so that he could help to even out the equation between 
socioeconomic groups and health. And the best he had was the calorie. That was the best thing he came up with with equivalencies so we can get rid of a lot of, you know, immediate effects of what we see in malnutrition if we just up the caloric load of those who are eating a substandard diet. And he saw very short, he very, he saw good changes in a short amount of time. So that's why he started to use the calorie and, um, and it was, and, you know, try to introduce more animal products on the argument that they have a higher density caloric load. Therefore they can help these people get, get healthier faster. And so we had the government cheese program. Um, that's why that, that came into existence and what, you know, poor people or low socioeconomic people were giving, being given government cheese and it was to help to make them healthier. And now a hundred years later, we have companies like Whole Foods that are giving a complete opposite message. The message being, here's how you would eat to be malnourished back a hundred years ago and we're going to charge you a premium for it. Um, right. I, I, yeah, I just, okay. I've, I find things like that so interesting and when you know those histories – it starts to at least, you know, it, in general, you know, those naysayers, it, you know, kind of creates a little bit of a question mark for them. Like, is this, it's interesting enough that they'll go look at that. They may not, they'll say, oh, you know, anything, science, you can interpret science any way you want. But, you know, Nina's book, I think was a good example of that. And um, why we get fat had a little more of it in your movie as well. You know, I had these stories that make, that resonate with people and, and they look into it a little bit more. So when you were you were creating the movie, were, were you kind of cognizant of that? You said you definitely you wanted to stay away from the heavy science, which is intimidating. Um, was that I? I, I didn't. I, I wanted to. <clears throat> I wanted to read the science for myself, mm -hmm. but I I needed to then pass that along in a way that's not intimidating. You know, I was very aware that I had a lay audience, whereas. Uh, the intended audience for good calories, bad calories was the medical and research community. So that's what I kept stressing when uh, I was emailing pieces of script back and forth with Gary Taubes. I would say this, this is a lay audience. As soon as they come across a term like reesterification, I'm going to lose them. Right. So I need to explain these things in a way that makes sense. But, it, you know, I can't simplify it too much that it's that it's wrong. So, no, I have, I have no problems reading and absorbing the science myself. But then I'm constantly thinking, how do I explain this to someone who doesn't want to get bombarded with science? Right. And, and now, that, now that you've gone down that road, what are you doing with that understanding? Um, bef before we got started recording the show, you said you're, you're working on a book. You know, what's kind of the next, next push? Well, when Fathead came out, um, and I've explained this on the blog, I had real problems with the first two distributors, one of whom was incompetent and the second, um, they were basically a den of thieves. So it really was about two years after Fathead had been out that we got it into the hands of a, a good, honest distributor who put it uh, various places, including Netflix. And once it hit Netflix, I mean, it, it kind of exploded. Um, I didn't really follow Netflix Ratings, I didn't even know how to. Someone finally pointed out to me that more than 250,000 people had given it a rating, and most people don't bother giving things a rating. Um, so at that point, suddenly there's a lot more traffic on the blog. I'm hearing from a lot more people. One of the really 
pleasant surprises after Fathead went to Netflix, I started getting a lot of emails from parents saying, basically, thank you for making this. My kids loved it. My son has watched it six times and <laughs> he doesn't want to eat sugar anymore. And I was thinking, what do you mean your your 10 year old watched it six times? And I realized it was the cartoon stuff. It was the funny okay. stuff. Uh, and that stuff really appealed to kids. And I didn't I didn't make that trying to appeal to kids. I made that trying to keep it amusing and funny so people would watch. But it turned out it, it really did appeal to kids. So my wife and I got thinking about that later. And, and, you know, I realized there's a lot of good books out there and I read a whole bunch of them on these topics, but there really aren't many written at the kid level. And the couple that I've seen aren't what I would call amusing. So we're trying to kind of recreate the fun, informative, amusing feel of Fathead in a book for kids. And then we're going to do a DVD companion as well, which will be sort of like a second film. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That you're right. There's not a lot of information directly palatable for children. It always is disseminated through some higher source. So, you know, they, they never get, that's they always get that taint of whatever the person's opinion is, who's giving it to them. I remember, I taught high school for a year, which was probably the biggest mistake of my life. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I did, I did learn how basically um, stolid teachers are, even in the face of massive amounts of uh, research or even talking to university professors. I got the health teacher at the school, and I won't mention the school to save her embarrassment taught emphatically to her students that carbohydrates were an essential nutrient in the diet, that you would die without them. I even mm -hmm. lined up a phone call with university professors to tell her that to just have a conversation, you know, not even really put her on the defensive. I was like, we should just really talk about this because that's really bad information. And I know it's not in the textbook. And she was just like, no, they're wrong. Mike, you have a university researcher in the field telling you that carbohydrates are not an essential part of the diet, and yet your your attitude is no, that's wrong. I don't care if it's in the textbook. I don't care what they say. That's wrong. I'm going to teach it this way. And, you know, that's such a disservice. And the, and the kids really had, and they still have no place to go to kind of do their own self-research. And that's what I found interesting is they will. When I would say something in my class, if students came with information from another class and I would just happen to say something about it that was different, you know, I was really impressed by how they would go to the library and they would look it up for themselves and try to figure it out. Uh, and, and in this field of nutrition, like you said, there there is no resource really for them like that to go do the self-exploration. Well, the, the fortunate thing is I, I think that's changing. Um, I actually gave a speech a little over a, a year ago called Diet Health and the Wisdom of Crowds. Um, I read an excellent book that, which really had nothing to do with nutrition called The Wisdom of Crowds. And it is it basically explains, among other things, how when the, the, the media gatekeepers have not only lost control of the gates, the gates are disappearing. Mm -hmm. between with all the social media out there and all the films that would have never been made back in the day, like Fathead, all the books that would have never made it into the bookstores, 
um, but but can be read by people now because Amazon doesn't worry about shelf space. Um, there's this explosion in what they call the wisdom of crowds, where it's people sharing information with each other when 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, they wouldn't have been able to share that information. There was no vehicle or forum for them to share that information. And as people share information back and forth, the correct answers tend to kind of bubble to the top. And, and, and I mean, and that's an important aspect of it. The answers bubble up to the top instead of being handed down from the top. And I see more and more people when, you know, they go to a doctor, they get bad advice. They try something. The doctor says it doesn't work. These days you go to the internet and you start looking for alternative ideas. And you know, a hundred of the ideas you come across might be worthless, but the hundred and first might be great. And that's really what the wisdom of crowds is about is people can now go seek alternative sources of information until they find what works for them. And what works for them might not be what works for you or me, but the point is they can find something. Do you see that in your practice, Rocky? And you're being kind of quiet over there for some reason. <clears throat> no, I just, I'm just listening. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think that I, th- I see patients coming into their providers um, looking for approval. Right. So because I think they still will look at the large source of information that's out there and may try whatever they may try. Um, But I think there's still a level of because it's not, you know, it's not a recommendation from the American Heart Association or not a recommendation from the American Diabetic Association, um, which in general are probably making people sicker anyways. But that's another story in itself. Um, they, they're still looking for approval because, you know, again, they're trying to make themselves healthier and, 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 and improve their longevity and they want to, they don't want to be doing something that's going to be a, a negative effect yet. They know what they're doing currently is not working for them. So, um, and I think it's really up to the healthcare provider to support that patient. And like you said, Tom, I think that it's important if they find something that works for them, you know, if it's quote unquote unconventional, I think that if it is working for them, then they should hopefully have a provider that's that's you know bright enough to say, okay, well, let's follow along and see how things go. I mean, I, I think yeah, and one- I, I think that's important, and you know, I hope more doctors are trained to do that because I mean, as as you know, most doctors are trained saturated fat's going to clog your arteries and kill you. Um, I, I had a friend who had a, a high cholesterol level that worried his doctor. Um, he tried different things. He ended up going on the Atkins diet. He next time he went in to see the doctor and they ran labs, his lipid panel had improved, you know, to the point where it made the doctor really happy. He said, what'd you do? I went on the Atkins diet. He said his doctor kind of looked at him and blinked a couple times, obviously in a little bit of shock, and then said, well, okay, if that's what's giving you these numbers, keep doing it. You have to give that doctor credit for at least looking at the evidence and saying, well, maybe I don't know why this is working, but it's working. Whereas a lot of doctors would have just said the Atkins diet will kill you, get off of it. Right. And and I think that part of the issue though is in, in, I mean, we can go on down this entire rabbit hole of healthcare and how it's distributed and how it's given, but you know, most providers, um, they may want to take in additional information to figure out what's going on, but they probably don't have time to do it in terms of what their scheduling is like and what they're trying to do and, and that type of thing. And so it takes that 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 provider um, the uh, impetus to go out and really try to look at things. 
And at least for me, I mean, for me, it was a personal issue because I was unhealthy and I was overweight and I was pre-diabetic. And so I had to do something about it. And so um, when full circle came around, you know, I, I, I'm kind of where you, you know, where you, what you found in, in the movie Fathead. I mean, it was, it was the carbohydrates probably that was the biggest factor in my life. Um, and it wasn't necessarily the saturated fat or the, the meat or some of these other things that are really just, um, um, given a negative connotation in the media and in, 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 in certain circles. I mean, I was at the hospital this morning, running on a patient and I, you know, his blood sugar was elevated in, uh, uh, last couple mornings. I'm like, you know, I, you might be diabetic. I go, but and, you know, then, but then in the same circle, you look at the food tray, they bring him. It's a cardiac diet. Okay. Right. That's what they brought him. And it's got a bowl of oatmeal. Um, he got French toast yesterday and <laughs> he had, um, I'm trying to remember he had, a. Uh, uh, a, a glass of juice and I mean, you know, so it's like, it's just completely ass backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, when, when, oh, go ahead, Tom. No, I was going to say when my, my dad went into a, a home, this was some years ago for Alzheimer's patients. And, you know, when we looked at the kind of meals they served and I mean, he was pretty far gone at this point. It's not like I thought anything was going to turn it around. But you look at what meals they're serving them, and I'm thinking, well, if if it's true that Alzheimer's is kind of a form of diabetes, this uh, diet sure isn't going to help any, because it was not, just all sugar and starch. Yeah, not at all. I mean, and it was funny because I was I was uh, I was you know I was I was walking by the cafeteria and they had the you know they had the, the the poster boards up of different things, and on one of them they had their nutrition all stars. So it was like. Um, other RDs that were listed on there and kind of gave backgrounds of what they were recommending. And, you know, I'm reading the profiles. I'm just kind of like shaking my head. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, one of them was, you know, uh, I'm a advocate of, uh, you know, moving more and eating less. And I'm like, <laughs> this is what we're up against, right? I mean, <laughs> day in and day out. <laughs> right. Yep. That's the all-star all -star board. That's the all-star board. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, everybody keeps, you know, they want to go back to the these epidemiological studies and say, look, we have this, which, you know, I have as a physicist and mathematician, I have all kinds of problems with epidemiological studies, period, especially the longer they run, the worse the information quality is, which means the worse the correlation quality is. I mean, basically over time, you can make any correlation you feel like. Um, so, right. I, you know, I, I find those to be somewhat useless and we have such great, solid information about, um, you know, the um, biochemistry of cells, the physiology of the body, endocrinology. We have such great information. Like, you know, Alzheimer's is a great example when we look at uh, the protein folding effect and, uh, and the misfolded protein response. You know, sometimes proteins mis misfold and that can cause problems. Um, that's one of the things that they're starting to solidly link to the spread of Alzheimer's in the brain. And if if you, you know, just look at that science, we see that the misfolded protein response that would ultimately try to correct the folding issue or degradate the proteins that are misfolded is turned off in the presence of insulin and glucose. And right. if those things sit around, then they can spread from cell to cell to cell and, you know, basically cause a systemic problem instead of what was originally just an isolated cellular problem. You know, you look at those pieces and there's hundreds of facts like that about glucose and insulin. 
And when you put them all together, it's just a no-brainer. It's like, okay, too many carbohydrates too often in the diet is has to be a problem. I mean, there, there's just no other way that you can think of it that way. But then you have these other voices are like, oh, well, look at this epidemiological study of Okinawans who ate white rice all the time and they're fine. Like, it's, it's so far afield of what we know at a very specific level and they, they try to extrapolate that to all populations and especially with all these exploding fields of epigenetics and personalized um, diets and, you know, personalized mineralized ba mineral balances like Dr. Walsh talks about. It just amazes me that it's still so difficult just to get people to open up to that idea that we really need to look at carbohydrates first. And that's why I loved Fathead because you really did show that the quality of the food almost, you know, is not as important as limiting the carbohydrates you ingest. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, if you address the elephant in the room, then the other things just don't become as important. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's both. Um, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying you should eat fast food. All that. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to well, be that. Right. And that's what yeah. people have, have emailed me and said, you know, well, how much fast food do you eat? And th <laughs> the answer is, well, honestly, almost none. Um, I, I went on the fast food diet in Fathead to make a point. Um, I don't swing by McDonald's for lunch every day or anything. Um, but I mean, I, I do think the, I think it's a combination of total carb load and then source of the, the carbs, certainly. And then what else is in the diet? Um, we, for instance, my daughters, we don't count their carbs. We don't in any way try to limit their carbs, but because we are basically a, a whole food family, I don't mean whole food in terms of the store. Right. I mean, because they really don't eat much, uh, that's been processed. I know their carb load is considerably lower than what their friends are ingesting because, you know, to really jack the carb load up, you almost have to eat processed food. I mean, even if you tried doing it with potatoes, you're probably going to get full before you could suck down that many carbohydrates, you know, like you can eating a, you know, a bowl of sugar pops or whatever. So we just kind of let my daughters go by their appetites. And if, if they want a potato with dinner, they want squash for dinner. I mean, I'm totally fine with that because they're not drinking sodas. They're not eating breakfast cereals. They're not eating bread made from wheat their carb load is just naturally going to be lower, but we don't in any way say, well, I'm sorry, dear, you've had a hundred carbs today. We're going to, we're going to cut you off there. <laughs> right. I'm sure that would work very well anyway. Oh yeah. Kids <laughs> would just love that, wouldn't they? So I, how I, I'm just on, you know, kind of the personal side of things. I'm just curious, like, what was your background before being a comedian and then, you know, moving, I'm just wondering how like your story all ties into this direction. Uh, I, I was a journalism major in uh, college. Well, first I did pre-med and then I decided I didn't want to be a doctor. Then I became a journalism major. That led to me when I graduated, I graduated getting a job as a writer with a small health magazine called Family Safety and Health um, because they were impressed that I had that pre-med you know, background. So they figured, well, the, the health aspect of this isn't going to freak him out. Now, it's kind of funny. I, I, I would be embarrassed if people dug out the articles I wrote back <laughs> in the day. Because again, this is pre-internet. You know, you couldn't just go out and find all these different sources. So you, you got your information 
from what I now call the usual suspects. You know, it would be the American Heart Association and the USDA and et cetera, et cetera. So I wrote a lot of articles back in the day, you know, telling people to watch your cholesterol and avoid too much fat in the diet and all that. Um, I eventually left that job because I wanted to to try being a stand-up comedian, which I did. And then, what was it, probably 10 years later, I sort of returned to to health writing via, via fathead. Right. Only this time I don't tell people to avoid cholesterol and eat a low-fat diet. Yeah, that I think people miss how important the Internet's become in all of this because when I first started this, which was, oh gosh, 20, over 20 years ago now. I mean, my only source, you know, I was reading the magazines, I was reading the books that were out there, and I just, I didn't look like I thought I should look for everything that I was doing. And, you know, I, and then I started to see a couple of articles referencing scientific articles, and the only place I could go find those was I had to go to the medical library. And luckily I lived by a really good one. And that was the only source for that kind of information. I mean, I had to go to the library. I had to bring a pocket, well, more like a bag full of quarters. And I would be right. in there all day, yeah, going through the journals, making photocopies. And, you know, I'd walk out with this huge stack of paper. And I think people miss how easy it is now and, you know, that – the, the rate at which we can access information and find things and find the connection between things, I mean, has accelerated, like you said, the, the wisdom of crowds almost exponentially. Yeah, and I think that's hugely, that's hugely important. It may, even if you were the person who lives, you know, walking distance from a medical library, even still, just how much time does it take you while reading a journal article? It references another one. Now you have to go find that one on the shelf. <laughs> right. That references another one. You have to go yeah. find that one. You know, at some point, you're going to run out of your day, and mm -hmm. maybe you've tracked down half a dozen articles. I'm sitting here on the Internet. If it references something, I click the link. That references something. I click the link. Two minutes later, I've already had a chance to glance at half a dozen articles and see if that's what I'm looking for. So... I, I, you couldn't make a film like Fathead back in the days when you had to track this stuff down in the library. And even if I could have tracked the stuff down back in those days, I would have had to have gone around begging for someone to shoot and edit this film and provide the, the funding for it. Whereas, of course, I shot it myself. I edited it myself. And really, it didn't get into having to deal with... Um, a lot of other people until we went into post-production. Oh, that's really, I didn't realize that you, you know, you shot it and edited it all yourself. How was that experience? Uh, it, it was a learning experience. I, I shot it myself and I was really just learning as I was going along. Now I was fortunate that my wife's sister, um, at the time was a documentary filmmaker. Um, she actually made a a documentary that won quite a few awards called out of the shadow, which was about schizophrenia. So she had done this and she kind of guided me through the process. In fact, I shot most of Fathead on her camera, which I had borrowed. Um, but I was shooting and making a lot of mistakes. I had to throw away a lot of footage cause I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I'd have to go shoot it again. Then I taught myself to edit and I originally edited it in Adobe premiere and then when post-production time came around, 
the post house was looking at my hard drive and they said, these are premier files. I said, yeah, they said, we can't do anything with those. It has to be done in Final Cut Pro. So I had to go out get a copy, buy a Mac, get a copy of Final Cut Pro, edit the whole thing again oh my God. in Final <laughs> Cut Pro and take it back to them. Oh, God. So it was, uh, it was definitely a labor of, there was, a, there was one point in there when I worked around the clock for three days with no sleep because I was trying to beat a deadline for getting the editing done. And, uh, and then I went home and slept for 20 hours. So, I mean, it was, a, it was definitely an interesting experience, labor of love. How did you go from writing to stand-up comedian, stand-up comedy? I mean, how, what was the, the drive there? Was that something you had a hobby in or is this something that you wanted to just completely change directions? When I was still doing writing for the health magazine, I, I ended up doing some freelancing and then I started just writing humor pieces and sending them out. And I actually sold a fair number of those. And so at that point I decided, well, you know, I, I obviously have a sense of humor people in, will enjoy. Why don't I take this to the stage? So I went to uh, a couple of amateur nights and made the uh, mistake of getting up on stage and basically saying the type of humor that might have been funny in print. And very quickly found out as I stood there for five minutes and got one <laughs> chuckle, barely, <laughs> that what's funny to read and what's funny to hear are related, but they are not the same thing. So I ended up taking a job as a doorman at the improv in Chicago when they still had an improv comedy club, just so I could watch comedians who had figured this out. I mean, I wasn't taking their material or anything. I was just watching and analyzing, and I'm, I'm a pretty analytical person. I was analyzing and thinking, why is that funny? And why is that funny to hear when it might not have been funny to read? So after about six months of that, I, I went back and started writing new material based on kind of what I'd picked up, you know, as the concepts of what make people laugh. And, uh, and from there I actually started to do pretty well, pretty quickly. I, it's, well, oh, go, go ahead, ahead, Rocky. No, go ahead. You don't talk. I was say, <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, I was, uh, I've read some of your blog pieces and, you know, talking to you and um, listening to video or watching video of you, um, you come off as a, maybe a slightly different person on print. And I almost find, and I'm not sure if this is something that you realize this or someone has pointed this out to you, but I find that your your written material, at least on your blog posts, um, there's a bit of wit, um, as, like a, a bit of irritation and a bit of anger almost, or as, it's almost ascorbic to a certain um, um, standpoint, mm -hmm. um, but yet um, very palpable and very um, <clears throat> um, very um, genuine. And and so that's something I don't necessarily see. I, I don't hear a lot of that from you when I talk to you, like for right now, or when I listen to some of your YouTube posts. Uh, so I just said, no, if that's something that is done on purpose, or you, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of that's the way it rolls out. You know. I if I'm sitting around talking to friends, I mean, yeah, I'll make a fair number of witty comments if they occur to me. Um, when I was a comedian on the road, I became very aware of comedians who would never turn it off. They, they literally could not open their mouths without trying to be funny. And man, did that get annoying. And sometimes, yeah, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I really just want to have a conversation. I, I don't want you to try to amuse me right now. So when I'm in interview situations or whatever, I'm, I, 
I'm not constantly spinning the wheels and thinking, what funny thing can I say about that? Um, and, and I'm actually kind of pleased when people who have known me through other situations, such as the work I do as a computer programmer, it, it, it actually kind of pleases me when they find out I used to be a stand-up comedian and they say, I can't picture you as a comedian. It's like, well, you'd have to see me on stage. Or people who did see me on stage, knowing me through some other, you know, situation, and they'd come up afterwards and say, I cannot believe you're the same guy up there. So, I mean, I like to turn it on and adopt that comedian personality when I'm on the stage, but I, I don't like comedians who can't, can't seem to turn it off. That, um, yeah, I don't really have any follow-up on that or even a very good segue into what you got me thinking about, <laughs> which was uh, early on you talked about people being, you know, um, over, overweight people are kind of that the last bastion of things we can make fun of or are made fun of and shamed in certain ways. Um, and it, it, it's still somewhat acceptable because we do, you know, whole, you know, like the whole point of your movie, we just accept we assume that it's true. People just over overeat. They can't control themselves. We imagine them sitting down every night on the couch with a gallon of ice cream and three bags of potato chips and two liters of Coke. And that must be what they do every night. And that's the only reason they're fat. And that imagery, and we even see, we get that imagery on TV and we get that imagery in ads when we see weight loss commercials. You know, it's really reinforced. So kind of lends credence to, yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's, that's disgusting. And I think even the people who are overweight see that and are like, that's disgusting. And that's not me. So what do I look like that? Um, and, and what I've, it, and this went around the internet, I guess, last week, it crops up every once in a while. But now it's almost becoming acceptable in social media to do uh, it, it, and it's prevalent enough that it's gotten its own term now, fit shaming, where they will, where, you know, somebody posts something that I thought was innocuous and maybe even they thought it would be encouraging, uh, like a mother of two or three children who's in great shape, posting a picture of herself in great shape. It says, look, if I can do it and I have two children and I have a full-time job, so can you. And then there's this right. explosion of, how can you be so rude and how denigrating and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I, how did this go so far askew? She's trying to encourage you. Look, I can do this. You can too. And it turns into this, you're such a horrible person. And I mean, some of the comments are just so far off the hook. I, I can't even comprehend what went wrong there. You know, I, I guess it would depend on, the, the person's the person who was posting their attitude about it. I wrote a post a while back. There was some British uh, reality TV star and you look at pictures of her and she's obviously been skinny her whole life. Mm -hmm. And then she went out and she kind of did a Spurlock thing. She massively overate and put on, I don't know, 20, 25 pounds or something. And then she went back to eating normally and lost it. And she said, see, it's a simple matter of overeating. I got fat. <laughs> then I cut back. And I'm thinking, so, yeah. so your body snapped back to the weight that it hormonally wants to be at. Whoopee. That, that proves absolutely nothing. Right. Um, so people who, who, who post and say, 
I did it, so can you. Eh, no, not necessarily. You may have a completely different metabolism than, than other people do. You may be a natural mesomorph where your body wants to be lean and muscular and you almost have to do something to screw it up to not be lean and muscular. Mm -hmm. See, I, it, in, from my perspective, you know, I have had clients um, and through my coaching staff and everything that have come through and they were really overweight and they'd had problems with weight their whole lives. And, you know, through diet and even minimal exercise, a lot of times they look fantastic. And, you know, for them, sometimes, you know, they, they love sharing the pictures with us, but they're sometimes hesitant about letting us put them out there. And they're very careful about, okay, well, how are you going to put this out there? Because they're a little worried that there's going to be a backlash you know, not necessarily against me, but them, if we name them. And, you know, I, right. I, I think that's a really good differentiation you made. You know, why are you doing it? Are you, you know, were you skinny your whole life? I know some people out there who, it, it's funny, they've almost, they cloned my material to the point of they cloned my backstory. And yet all these kids, all these pictures I've seen of them as a child, they were always the skinny kid. It's like, but they right. have my exact story. I was like, I was a really fat kid and you just can't see it on them. They're like, they're shredded all the time. It doesn't matter how they eat or what they're doing. They cannot exercise for six months and they look the same. And it's, it's like, you know, so I, you know, I can see why people are somewhat hesitant of that. And I have no idea where I was well, going with that. <laughs> that's, that's all right. We'll turn left. Okay. Um, that's why, I, that's why I think the background matters. Um, I, I don't do it a whole lot, but I occasionally get uh, emails from people who have seen Fathead and were inspired by Fathead to think about their diet and cut way back on the sugar and the starch and go toward a, a lower carb, higher protein, higher fat diet. And I will get pictures from people to go along with their emails before and after where they've lost 50 pounds, 100 pounds. I put those stories occasionally on the blog and no one has ever gotten upset because these are people who, and it's, it's obvious in the emails they sent me, they struggled with their weight for years. Mm -hmm. So in my experience, when people see that, someone who was fat, tried Weight Watchers, tried Jenny Craig, struggled for years, finally went low carb, lost 50 pounds or whatever, I, I've never found anybody to be upset about that or how dare you rub it in my face. In that case, they find it inspiring. What makes people mad is when it's the, the Jillian Michaels of the world or this British TV star I was talking about or Mimi Roth, that horrible woman who's constantly going around talking about, you know, how lazy and fat people are, how lazy and gluttonous people are and that's why they're fat. If it's people who were never fat as kids, they were never fat as adults, they were what I call born on the metabolic finish line and think they won a race. When those people put pictures of themselves and say, see, I did it, so can you, that then, yeah, I, I kind of want to slap them. I would agree with that too. I see that with patients as well. I mean, I, I've, I've kept about 85, 90 pounds off for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. And, you know, patients who are new to my practice will come in and, and they'll say, well, and I'll give them some, some dietary advice or something like that. And they'll, they'll say that to me. They'll say, well, Dr. Patel, you, you're thin. You don't have to worry about it. You know what it's like. And then I kind of pull the picture out and like, see, <laughs> and they go, oh, 
<laughs> so and, and then then they kind of uh, rethink their their thinking there, and and they're not as um, um, negative about their uh, attitude to toward what I try to recommend. So I see that, um, and I see that almost invariably every day when I get patients coming through, and we keep I keep actually I keep my pictures of like my 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 I call them my Jabba the Hut pictures because I, I have one picture where I'm sitting back in a chair and I I it looks like I'm Jabba the Hut. So I, I keep my Jabba the Hut pictures in the office so the patients can see. Say, look, you know, I I understand where you're coming from. I I was there. So I I completely concur with that. It, it, I think it's the it, the framework of where that's coming from, and so certainly if you have that that fit model who, like you say, or the actor who gains the weight and then takes it back off. Yeah, I mean, that's great for that person, but it's virtually meaning, meaningless for the, the average Joe on the street who's been struggling with their, their issues for, you know, 15, 20, 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think for most of us, and you know what, I'm not shredded and I don't think I ever will be. So for most of us, it's, it's an ongoing study. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what could we do a little different to maybe improve a little bit? And I mean, I'm, I'm not unhappy with my weight anymore like I was for most of my adult life. Uh, but I still, you know, still have that little bit of softness around the middle. And so I will play around with things. I'll try little tweaks. You know, I could try going to more of a, uh, you know, diet like Paul Jaminet recommends. Um, sometime after I heard you guys on Jimmy Moore's show, I started doing a, a carb night on the weekends. I mean, I'll play a- around a little bit. But the important thing is, I I'm I know I'm never going to go back to that place where I look in the mirror and I say, "Oh my God, you're a pig. What's wrong with you?" <laughs> at at right. this point now, it's like, okay, you know, you look pretty good for a 56 year old man. Maybe we'll try a few things and see if we can improve it a little bit. And if if it does, great. If not, so what? I'm I'm not in a I'm I'm happy with where I am. I would just you know see if can we make little little improvements. That would be cool. Yeah, it's it's kind of a you know that's one thing. I found, and I, I thought it was interesting, Rocky, earlier when you talked about, you know, you're out of shape, you're overweight, and you had to go outside of your professional training to find ways to make yourself healthy, which is one of the most oxymoronic things I think I've ever heard, <laughs> if, if you think about it, right? Because you're supposed to be the source of information on how to be healthy, and you're in a position where you're like, shit, I have no idea how to make myself healthy. And you had to well, go if it figure requires, it out. <laughs> well, if it requires a pill to make you healthy, I'm your guy. Okay. <laughs> but, but, you know, you know, and, and you probably you've heard this over and over again, whatever documentary, whatever book, you know, physicians really get very little about, you know, education on nutrition. And what we do get is usually something of the fact of, you know, like I say, eat less saturated fat, eat less salt. Uh, eat more fruits and vegetables. I mean, that's that's essentially that. There's your nutritional uh, educational uh, symposium for healthcare providers. I mean, so um, so yeah. I mean, and in like Tom said, I mean, I tried all those things. I tried at you know um, Weight Watchers and and uh, all the other programs, and you know, it always never, never, nothing ever worked, right? So, um, and the only thing that's been sustainable for me is uh, a lower carbohydrate based diet. And certainly because of some of the health issues that run in my family and my genetics, it what's works, it's what's works for me. So, um, but again, yeah, I, I, you know, yeah, now that you reflect on that oxymoronic statement, it is kind of, it's actually quite amusing actually. (laughs) But the shame of it is that there are still so many people out there who think like doctors, first off, they think of doctors as scientists and I've had 
at least a couple doctors tell me, you know, we're not really trained in medical school to think like scientists in terms of what you said, Kiefer, you look at epidemiological studies and you know, because you came from a hard science background, there's, there's a lot of problems with those. There are a lot of variables that they couldn't control for, et cetera, et cetera. You approach those looking at them like a scientist would, spotting the, the problems. Whereas a lot of doctors, they see new studies says this or that, and they just think, well, that's it. That's, this is what this epidemiological study shows, and therefore it must be the truth. Um, so I, I've had several doctors tell me, yeah, we're not really trained to analyze science that carefully. You kind of go to seminars and they say a study says this and a study says that, and you're just supposed to accept it as the truth. So I think, first off, a lot of people mistake how scientifically, how well scientifically trained doctors are. And second, you would think that based on what people believe, you would think doctors, you know, spend an entire year studying nutrition and health. And every doctor I've talked to, and I've talked to quite a few of them now, said, no, we had one nutrition course and it was kind of a blow off course. Right. Is that your and, you know, education? I, I think the other thing that I think the other thing to keep in mind would be, you know, I think, and I think it's important on both sides of the, of the spectrum is, is just the internal confirmation bias that most people have as well. I mean, you get into this one, you get into tunnel vision and, you know, it's hard not to, you know, open up the blinders. And so I think that certainly, um, the three of us kind of drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak here in terms of low, low carbish, uh, lifestyle. But I think it's also important to keep that, that, um, um, open uh, opinion to be able to look at stuff and look at the science and, and see if there's something that might be negative as well. Uh, I think we all, you know, have this negative opinion of, of the current diet. But again, I think that confirmation bias is something that we always have to be suspect to because and, and shine that light on our, ourselves because we, it's important because um, we don't want to be doing the same thing that the other side is doing, so to speak. No, I, I agree with you totally. And it's something, you know, you have to constantly guard against. Um, but that's why, that's why I, I read Paul Jaminet's Perfect Health Diet because, you know, for him, when I first made Fathead and came out, you know, uh, doing uh, an Atkins-type diet and I read Good Calories, Bad Calories, I mean, I was kind of sold on the idea, like, the fewer carbohydrates, the better. Um, then you read something like the Perfect Health Diet and you realize, no, some people actually have problems if they go too low in, in carbohydrates. And, you know, the big thing was ketogenic. Okay, I can see that's hugely beneficial for some people. But then I like to read about, you know, some people struggle with a ketogenic diet or if they're in ketosis in perpetuity, they seem to develop health problems that they don't develop if they break it once in a while. Right. So I, I think it's hugely important to, to keep looking and not, let me put it this way. I don't think we should ever think we have all the answers. Should always keep looking. Yeah, for sure. That's why... People think it's weird because I had carb night, which I think is an excellent diet for some things, but, you know, it didn't meet all my needs. And that's why I looked deeper and found, you know, another route that could be really useful. And some people do way better on carb night and some people do way better on carb backloading. Um, and just, you know, like you said, I know some people who do better having carbs throughout their day. Usually they're, they're very athletic uh, and there's, there's other people that seem to thrive on a ketogenic diet, uh, at least for a short periods of time. Uh, so, you know, I'm open to all that, but at the same time, I'm, I'm constantly looking for reasons my stuff doesn't work 
or why it might mm-hmm. might not be the best that it is. And you know, that's the only reason I have two diet books. And you know, maybe there will there will be a third kind of framework that I come up with for some people, which I'm sure will happen. And you know, it, it to me to me because that you know that's the fun part. That's the fun part is you know keeping up with the research, learning more, seeing where I missed things. Um, you know, I think paleo suffers from this now because they're you know, they were so hardcore on this wheat issue and gluten issue. And now gluten's turning out to be a canard and they're, they're really now hunting for any other thing in wheat that it could be. It's FODMAP. So, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to have a FODMAP free diet. And, you know, when that probably turns out to be a canard, they're going to say, oh, well, it's, you know, the trypsin inhibitors in wheat. So they're going to have a trypsin inhibitor free diet. And there's, oh, well, you know, it wasn't that. You know, it becomes this political issue, and that's – and it's interesting to me that paleo set itself up as so juxtaposed to the government's, um, you know, just staunch guidelines that aren't based in science, and now they're going down the same road. You know, the government had to defend itself the same way. It said these things. It's got to stick to its guns, and now the paleo community right. said these things. It's being proven not to be correct, and they're finding any way possible to stick to their guns, and that's – that's a situation I don't want to pigeonhole myself into ever where I have to do something essentially for political, you know, whether it's, you know, a small political world or a big political world, why I have to defend myself for those reasons other than, well, this is what the science says. We need to go with the science and what's working. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's important. Like I said, for one thing, we should never decide we have all the answers and and stop thinking. But as as part of that, I, I want people to avoid what I call vegan mentality, um, where no matter what science you present, no matter what evidence you present that your ideas might be wrong, for the vegan zealots, basically it comes down to, no, eating meat is evil, and therefore it can't possibly be good for you, and we don't care what evidence you can present that it is. So. It, it really, it's, it's very much akin to religious zealotry mm-hmm. with the same kind of closed-minded attitude. I found it very disappointing because I thought paleo was a great template for how we should look at diet, uh, mm-hmm. a great starting point uh, as a guide to maybe what is good for us or is not good for us. I was disappointed as I was reading a lot of blogs and forums to see that a fair number of paleo people essentially adopted that vegan zealot mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas if you do decide you're going to have a glass of milk, it's like you've you've committed a sin. And it's like th- this is about health. Uh, it's about guiding us toward better health. It's not about moral behavior. Diet should not be a moral issue. And if someone disagrees with you on diet, it should not be... Now I need to attack that person and beat them senseless because they're heathens. Right. I think I think secretly vegans actually want to ruin the world. That's that's my <laughs> new assumption because I've been you know I've been watching the work of Dr. Alan Savory. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, what he's been doing with uh, with the uh, the way cattle have helped to reclaim the uh, areas that had gone to deserts. Yes. Yes. Exactly that. And you know that how? Guy, it's, yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah, and he's he's been um, yeah obviously since you just basically summarized his work in a sentence really well, <laughs> um, 
you know, he, you know, and he's showing that it's easier to sustain the local communities food wise, you know, it's helping the environment, it's uh, cutting down on the amount of CO2 that's released in the atmosphere because we don't have to burn the grasslands. And, you know, all this vegetation and stuff we have to grow, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about it, but a lot of those fertilizers come from petroleum products. You know, that was the agricultural revolution that Germany started when they figured out how to, you know, get nitrates from petroleum products to then, you know, increase crop yield. So, you know, I think vegans secretly, they're always kind of the fringe of society. And, you know, I think they're just hell bent on ruining everything. You know, they want the world to be, you know, just this wasteland so that they can, I th- I think it has to do with they're so miserable, they just want an excuse for life to be over. I mean, it's really my final synopsis there. I don't, I, I just don't understand what else, what else the, the point could be. Well, I don't, I think a lot of them honestly believe that a vegan diet would save the planet, but they are, they're misinformed. Um, I, I really enjoyed Lear Keith's book, The Vegetarian Myths. And, you know, cause she was an ex vegan and she, mm-hmm. she, she believed she read from the vegan prayer book for 20 years. And I really loved the way she phrased this early on in the book where she said, what separates me from vegans is not ethics, it's information. Once she looked into the information, she had to accept that so many of her beliefs were wrong. Um, so, I mean, I think a lot of vegans sincerely believe that their diet makes people healthier. They sincerely believe that it would save the planet, but they're wrong. And the mistake right. that they make is adopting that zealot mentality, which is basically, I will not even consider evidence that I might be wrong. There are those who change their minds. Lear Keith did. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guy John Nichols wrote a fabulous book called The Meat Fix, where he gave up a vegan diet when he finally had to accept reluctantly that it was at the root of his many health problems. Um, and he's a sports writer, by the way, and, and funny as all get out. So his book's very much like the vegetarian myth, except you'll, you'll be laughing out loud as you're reading it. So there are those who are willing to change their minds. Um, but I mean, my point isn't to knock vegans. My point is, although I enjoy it, my point is that I don't want to see paleo people get into that same closed minded mm-hmm. mentality. And I know some of them have. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the, the vegan thing is, you know, interests me. Not only do they think, you know, it's healthier and could save the planet. Um, I remember and this, this study is really old and it was a survey done maybe 10, 15 years ago. But it's something like 90% of the U.S. population believes that a vegetarian or a vegan diet is the healthiest diet that, that exists. You know, even mm-hmm. – not even amongst the vegans and vegetarians themselves, but it's kind of a general consensus. If you want to be at the pinnacle of health, then you want to be a vegetarian. And that that is internalized, I think, is, you know, a, a whole problem with, the, you know, how the government needs to – stick to its guns, uh, you know, the World Health Organization, I think this was about a, two months ago, you know, offered an edict that all countries need to help to promote a vegetarian diet because that was the only way to solve hunger, solve all these nutrition problems and save the world. So it's, you know, it's not just the vegan zealots, unfortunately, um, that that hold on to that message. They're reinforced almost all the way across the board that that is correct. So 
Now, why look at the science? Who gives a crap about the science? They've got support on high and they've got their personal beliefs to to fall off of. And like you said, you know, paleo has, has kind of started to fall into that. It's like, well, all the great voices in paleo say this and, you know, we believe this wholeheartedly. So, you know, why look at any future science? It doesn't matter. You know, we've, we've got our edicts. Right. We've got our framework. We've got our paradigm. Nothing else matters anymore. Yeah, I think a lot of people out there, their attitude is a vegetarian diet would probably be better for my health, but I don't want to do it because I wouldn't enjoy it. Right. Um, so, yeah, there probably are those who say, oh, yeah, that would be better. It would save the planet. And then they probably feel guilty when they eat meat because they think, well, it'd be better if I didn't eat this, but I love it. So I'm going to anyway. Um, I think that's one of the one of the really good things about when you really delve into the research is to find out how many foods you thought were bad for you aren't. Um, when I interviewed, um, you remember, remember a guy in the film, uh, Dr. Eric Oliver, uh, when I interviewed him, he, he talked quite a bit about the, um, kind of leftover Puritan attitudes in the United States. And I, I really think I think I see some of that in when people think about diet, uh, because the you know the Puritans basically believed that to be pure, a Puritan, that a whole a whole lot of that came down to denying yourself, mm -hmm. denying yourself your pleasures. And I see a Puritan attitude in a lot of people when it comes to diet and health, basically thinking the more I deny myself, the less pleasure I allow myself to have the healthier I will be. And it's when you said a lot of people resist the idea, no, it can't possibly be right that bacon's good for you. I think for some people it comes down to, well, bacon's freaking delicious. So it can't possibly be good for me because good health means, means denying yourself things that taste good. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it, you know, I see that all the time. And I know Rocky, uh, you had a story, a couple stories recently when you were telling people what to eat to start to fix things. And they're like, I can, I can eat bacon. I'm, I'm affectionately known by one of my local cardiology practices. I'm the ba bacon diet doctor. So, uh, <laughs> so I got a, I've got a, I've got a, one local cardiology practice has been sending me like their train wrecks essentially. Uh, and I have to fix them. So, um, so they, they go back to their cardiologist and they're like, Dr. Patel didn't tell you to eat bacon, did he? And, and they go, well, yeah, he said I could have bacon. <laughs> so, but yeah, essentially that's, that's kind of how it goes. I mean, uh, typically I, I tell patients, here's what you should do. We, we kind of do like a reorientation for them for like 10 days, like we would do in carb night. And then I'll give them lists of things that they should be eating and, and then essentially come back in 10 days and we see how they're doing. And, you know, obviously, uh, within 10 days we see huge changes in how they feel um, weight, blood pressure, resting pulse rate. I mean, everything changes within 10 days. It's, it's just pretty amazing. But these patients have been struggling, you know, for, you know, decades, right? I mean, but this is, this is what we kind of do. I mean, and, and this is what you have to do to make patients healthier. Uh, and so it is kind of interesting. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned, um, the pleasure, the pleasure of eating these foods, because, you know, one of the things I really love about carb night is I can take pleasure in things that are delicious. I mean, all right, no one's going to deny a donut is delicious. And if you can find a paradigm to <laughs> eat in a healthy manner and allow yourself to have donuts, 
Well, I'm going to do that because they're delicious. Yet, you know, I, I, I recently posted a picture on Twitter of uh, some some choices that I had was, was going to go on for my next carb diet. And I, I was getting inflamed as a medical doctor. You know, you're put, putting this out there. And I'm like, well, you have to take that into perspective. It's not like I eat donuts every single day and every morning for breakfast. <laughs> I mean, right. So, but yeah, I mean. I think that I, I definitely see that kind of puritanical attitude toward whatever food is going to be and, 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 and some of that denialism. And so one of the things I always talk to my patients about is this, you know, we're not trying to um, make you not eat anything at all because the elimination of any one food is a recipe for failure. You know, what we want to try to do is try to make you help you understand that you can have things that you like in a certain paradigm to give you the max, ma- maximum health benefit and the minimal health risk. And I think that's a great way to look at this type of stuff and, and not be puritanical about certain foods to eat or not eat, you know? Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, exactly. A, yeah, there's nothing you can't eat at some point. I mean, even, I don't know how many people listen to, to pick up on this, but, you know, filet of fish I love those things. And like once every couple months, when I'm driving by a McDonald's, I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop and get three. And I love those things. And it really makes no difference whatsoever. But, you know, I'm only eating them once every couple months. Um, but I love them. And I know when I do eat them, I don't have to feel guilty about it. I don't really care. I know I'll be a little groggy the next morning, but that's about it. And uh, I'm okay with that. Uh, Jonathan Baylor and I were talking one time and we we're both big on the we were talking on one of the low carb cruises about you know diets and how people get into this puritan mentality and all that i mean we both have exactly the same attitude here part of the problem with a lot of dietary advice especially when you you start getting advice from the real zealots is you don't want to make perfect the enemy of good um and I've heard from people, for example, making fathead, and I would hear from people like, why didn't you talk about how if you're going to eat beef, it should only be grass-fed beef and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it, you don't want to make perfect the enemy of good. If, if someone has been told their entire lives that uh, you know, a healthy diet is shredded wheat and a glass of orange juice for breakfast and pasta with marinara sauce and no fat for dinner – and they're screwing up their health following this. And if I come along and convince them you would actually be better off eating a steak, they have just made a huge improvement in their diet. There's no point in scaring them off by saying, and by the way, it has to be a grass-fed steak, which is going to cost three times as much and they might not be able to afford. Uh, So uh, part of the reason I'm against this whole puritanical attitude, whether it's coming from the paleo community or anywhere, if you tell people that you have to be pure and you have to do it exactly this way or you're screwing up, then I think 90% of the people out there are going to say to hell with it. Yeah, it's work on work on the major things and worry about the minutia later if you ever need to. Um, you know, right. And I, that's that's my attitude. I don't worry about the minutia. Actually, I almost never worry about the minutia anymore. And I got caught up in that at different points in my life where, you know, every little thing that went in my mouth was very, very specific, you know, where it came from. And, and I got caught up in that crap. And, you know, I blame some of that for why I didn't have the results that I had. And now I just don't care. I've got a basic framework. It's very, very basic. Uh, if, 
if it's dark outside, then I'll eat some carbs. If it's not dark outside, then I'm going to eat nothing but fat and protein. Um, and that's pretty much my framework in my day. And I don't eat the carbs every night. But like I said, if it's dark and I want them, I will. And that that's it. That's all I worry about these days. And my health is better than it's ever been. I look as good as I've ever looked. And I'm 40 years old now. And I look way better than I did in my 20s. It's almost ridiculous. Uh, and I'm not neurotic about food anymore. Um, but... You know, some people, I think some people actually need that neuroses uh, to, to stick to things and to feel like they're doing the right thing for themselves. They're part of a movement. It's not just about their diet anymore. They're part of a larger global awareness. Um, so anyway, we've, uh, yeah, we, we've done something that I never do. And that's like, we're like more than 15 minutes or almost 15 minutes over the hour. And uh, it just... Really enjoyed having the conversation with you, so I didn't pay attention to the time. And I apologize if we wait up any of your time, Tom, that you didn't schedule Oh, it's Sunday for. afternoon. It's a, it's a, Sunday afternoon's a good day to, you know, sit around, don't do a whole lot. Basically on Sunday, we go to the gym. That's our whole day. Perfect. So anything you want to wrap up with, uh, let people know where to go, where to find you, what's, what's next on the agenda? Uh, sure. Um. The blog is www.fathead-movie.com. And basically, that's the place to go to find out about the film, to order the film, to find out how we're, you know, doing on the book. Uh, with the other products we sell, DVDs of my speeches and things like that. Basically, go there and you'll find out what you need to know. Yeah, if, if you guys have not seen Fathead, the movie, you, you really need to watch that. It's very entertaining. Uh, it's a great introduction to your friends who might be in the old guard and just don't want to listen to anything. It's it's just a really entertaining movie to get them uh, to watch and listen about, you know, the direction science is pointing us and, you know, why it's important to know that. And um, uh, honestly, how really the macronutrient makeup of your food is something that you need to consider. Uh, it can make a very big difference even if you're eating a fast food diet. So we'll, exactly. we'll make sure, yeah, we'll make sure all these links are on the, on the post. And, you know, thanks very much for, for being on the show. We appreciate it. Uh, it was a really great talking, talking with you. I appreciate you having me on. You guys have a good weekend. What's you left too, of Tom. it? Thanks. Yeah, thanks, you too. And that's another episode of Body IOFF. been listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.